Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Media Minister Catherine Martin once again defends her handling of the RTE crisis, this time in the doll. Very clear, the chair provides me with information and the DG reports to the chair. So just say again, the DG reports to the chair and the chair reports to me. Independent MEP Luke Ming Flanagan reacts to the hacking of his Twitter account and tells us about the impact it's had on him and his family. Famine fears growing in Gaza as the United Nations warns a quarter of the population is close to starvation. We are now urgently exploring all viable uh, delivery options to allow the resumption of operations in northern Gaza as soon as possible. And peril in the primaries for Joe Biden as the Democrats shed some support over the Gaza war. And the Donald Trump machine marches on. This November, the great state of Michigan is going to tell crooked Joe Biden, you're fired, get the hell out of here. First tonight, a Belgian prosecutor has sought a one-year prison term for a former European parliamentary assistant after he admitted hacking the Twitter account of Irish MEP Luke Ming Flanagan. Dermot Hayes from Dublin was convicted in a Belgian court of posting a tweet from Mr Flanagan's account that referred to Irish Green Party candidate Saoirse McHugh skinny dipping. Luke is on the line. He joins me now with his reaction uh, to this case. Uh, Luke, thanks for being with us tonight. Dermot Hayes, as I say, charged with fraudulently intending to damage your reputation. Today, uh, an apology in court from him ahead of his sentencing next month. Do you feel vindicated? Yeah, I certainly do. It's been a long road and it's been a difficult road. And uh, I'm kind of... I'm careful saying that because I know there's a lot of people tuning into this show, they're having a hard time and I suppose maybe they don't want to hear about a poor old politician, but it has been difficult. Um, not so much for me. Uh, it's been difficult to watch how difficult it has been for my family. Uh, comments made to me in front of my children at the school gate, um, pictures, uh, obscene uh, pictures uh, that were created on the internet over this, shown to my nine-year-old child my nine-year-old child asking me, Daddy, what's this about? And um, it's been very, very uh, difficult. And it has affected uh, my uh, children. Uh, it's affected one of my daughters particularly. And it's affected me. Um, uh, I'm someone who, as maybe people don't know it, uh, I have autism. And uh, life can be challenging enough, challenging enough uh, without having to deal with uh, rubbish like this. But uh, it's nearly over now. 
and uh, I look forward to uh, the sentencing hearing which will take place on the 25th of March and look I don't like to see anyone go to prison or uh, I don't like to see anyone's life made tough but um, that individual now is potentially facing a year in prison uh, either that or a suspended sentence potentially community service and no criminal record but uh, the good news for me is it's now uh, couldn't be clearer um, uh, I didn't uh, uh, tweet what was tweeted and that uh, it's obvious who did it. And I also want to say as well that uh, uh, this can't be easy on uh, Saoirse McHugh either. Um, having to listen to all this rubbish, um, people have to deal with enough in their lives. So look, overall, I'm uh, glad it's nearly at an end. Have you been in touch with Saoirse McHugh over, over this case? Yeah, well, I, I have been in contact with her throughout the throughout the whole thing. Actually, I've yet to talk to her about this yet today. It's just been so busy, but uh, I'm sure we'll touch base. Okay, and what's been her reaction to it? Um, as I said, uh, Dermot Hayes sending out that tweet from your account that said, "quote unquote," Saoirse McHugh photo skinny dipping, um, leading people maybe to the belief that it was you looking for that photo, um, and that that tweet was posted by you when in fact it was not. Um, what what's been her personal reaction to you um, in relation to that, and have you supported well, each other through this? Her initial reaction was to contact me and say, Luke, I believe you. I knew you wouldn't do that. So um, uh, there's, there's, there's no problem there. She's a very reasonable individual and a very skilled politician. And hopefully we'll see her elected uh, sometime in the future. But um, from just uh, all round, it's, it's, it, it's just a relief. And uh, look, any time if you hear that a politician has had their account hacked, the first pe thing people say is, I don't believe them. And uh, what I hope out of this uh, will be that in the future, no one will continue to throw that uh, this at me just for the sake of it, regardless of whether they know that it's uh, untrue. And uh, for me, that would be important. But look, I've had my name cleared today and uh, it's been a good day in that sense. You had your, you had your day in court, um, as you say. Um, it, it, was, it was nothing to do with you. But um, do you believe that Dermot Hayes' actions succeeded in damaging your reputation, even though you were hacked? Because you said the online abuse went on and it was, it was relentless. Yeah, it was relentless. And in court today, he said that um, he hadn't expected uh, it to do so much damage, but he also said that it peaked after one day. It, it may well have peaked after one day, but it continued after that at a ferocious rate, even up until uh, a couple of weeks ago. But the biggest problem that it caused for me was that any statement that I made on Twitter, and in particular at the time, I had got a really good amendment through on the common agricultural policy, which meant, and ultimately it's meant, tens of billions of euro has come to the west of Ireland uh, from areas like the Golden Vale. Around that time, I just got that through. I was looking forward to talking to people about it, discussing the benefits of it. But uh, it prevented me from doing that because I knew around those few weeks afterwards, if I rang anyone, inevitably, you're a journalist, you're going to want to ask me about this. And the difficulty for me was I couldn't speak about it. I couldn't talk about it because I didn't want to prejudice the case. And me not speaking about it and me not talking about it in a sense, maybe to some people it made them look guilty. And I had particularly particular people harassing me. Um, and one particular uh, woman, I won't mention her name, 
but she persisted and she persisted. And she made one comment about how my, my poor wife was, uh, was, was very ill after I got initially got elected to the European Parliament. And she threw that out there. Oh, poor Luke Ming Flanagan's wife was sick. And now he's whining about this. And just one thing after another, another comment which referenced my wife who works in Tusla, works with uh, vulnerable people. Uh, some guy stated, I feel really sorry for Luke Flanagan's wife after what he's done. Can, and this is difficult, yeah. uh, difficult for your family. I can see, to to. Um, Ming, how difficult it has been for you. And we do appreciate you talking to us about this now because it must have been, as you say, uh, frustrating not being able to, to speak out during the course um, as this case was proceeding. So uh, you will await sentencing on that um, next month. But just to bring you to other matters and uh, back to the day job, I suppose, um, before we let you go, yesterday the Minister for European Affairs, Peter Burke, criticised four Irish MEPs um, around voting against an aid package for Ukraine and said that, you know, Irish people should be aware of, of you know, what their representatives in Europe are voting against and their voting position ahead of European elections. What do you have to say in response to him on that? Well, I'd suggest you go and read a report from the European Court of Auditors. And the head of the Court of Auditors is a man from Ireland called Tony Murphy. And they're very, very clear. I would like money to go to the Ukrainian people. But there's much evidence out there that a lot of this money goes to oligarchs. And that system and that problem has not been solved. I would have another issue with the money as well. And it is the way and the way it has been given. It has been given on the basis that they privatise, they basically sell off all their jewels and basically they go to a more neoliberal model. For me, if we were given money to Ukraine, I would give it on the basis that it would be going to ordinary people and that it wouldn't be on the basis that you lean one way politically or the other. They're an independent country and we shouldn't be telling them how to run their economy. I have no problem with giving them money. I have no problem with helping them. In the first three months of this war, I paid the rent on a house for, uh, for someone who came from Ukraine to help them out initially. I have no problem with helping ordinary people. I do have a problem with the fact that there is evidence out there that oligarchs are pocketing in this and the ordinary people aren't getting what they should be getting. OK, there we'll leave it for now. Luke Ming Flanagan, thank you for joining us tonight from uh, Belgium. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Now, coming up next, the media minister has played down any dispute with the director general of RTE, saying that he doesn't answer to her for his management of the broadcaster. Catherine Martin was facing statements in the Dáil today on her handling of the continuing RTE controversy. Today's Dáil appearance followed last night's hearing of the Oireachtas Media Committee. Well, I'm joined now by Fianna Fáil Senator Shane Castles, Sinn Féin Senator Fintan Warfield, both members of the Media Committee, and Irish Times political correspondent Jack Horgan-Jones. You're all very welcome along to the programme tonight. Jack, we've had almost a week now of Catherine Martin in the headlines since that explosive interview last Thursday night on Prime Time. Yesterday, three hours in front of an Oireachtas committee, and today, standing up in the doll with those uh, statements, did we learn anything new today? Not really, to be frank. I mean, Catherine Martin is very much in the space of sticking to her guns. And what we learned today, I suppose above anything else, is not anything new material to the crisis itself, but I think probably how the opposition 
perceives this as a weak point, a point of vulnerability, a soft underbelly for the government. They now see that there is a situation where both RTE and the government can't be right at the same time. They see that there is a dramatic schism, as was outlined by Catherine Martin yesterday at the committee, between the chair of the board and the minister, which ultimately led to the resignation. And they see that this whole conflict is unresolved. So they're driving at that space and they're trying to make it seem, and successfully, you'd say, make it seem as if Catherine Martin is, you know, effectively out of her depth, overwhelmed. And these are the, these are the charges that are being kind of laid against her, you know. Now, on the flip side of that, in the normal run of these controversies, the risk is always that something new emerges. And that's something that the opposition would have been looking for today as well, trying to, trying to winkle out some new little detail that made life extra uncomfortable for Catherine Martin. But it didn't really emerge. Okay, there was so nothing because we new. had the new information yesterday in front yeah. of the Oireachtas Committee on, on, on the letter that we heard. She the letter, the phone call, the meeting that wasn't resisted, everything, yeah. Um, being sent, but nothing new today. Um, however, it was that opportunity, wasn't it, for the opposition to have a go. Is she damaged by this? I think she is. I think that this comes on the back of <laughs> a perception both within the coalition and without the coalition where she's kind of failed to put a political stamp on this. Now, the case for the defence from Catherine Martin's point of view is that a crisis that is so sprawling and so multifaceted and it's so quick to evolve as the RTE crisis, mm -hmm. you're better off kind of hovering above it and having that hands-off approach because if you get too close to it, you can get sucked in. The risk is obviously that you look like you're kind of, as opposed to uh, having your, your sleeves up, I think Catherine Martin put it, or Catherine Murphy put it today in the doll, as opposed to having your sleeves up, it's hands-off. So you're kind of damned if you do, yeah. damned if you don't. And in it's interestingly be interesting because what we heard from the opposition up to date was that the very hands-off approach and where is the media minister in all of this? And yet when she steps into the fray, Shane Castles, uh, that's, it appears, where it all blew up. What's your assessment of the Oireachtas um, briefing yesterday? You were asking some of the questions. Yeah, and I think it, it was very helpful. I think what's not helpful, what is regretful, is the way things have panned out over the past week. The last thing we needed was yet another controversy on top of all the other controversies. I'd say people actually can't remember what the original thing was to begin with, and we didn't need another sideshow. And this is a sideshow to the really substantive element of actually trying to get this ship back running again that is RTE. And I think that's the damaging thing, that people are losing confidence now in people's ability at an RTE level um, to, to actually deliver this. People that they felt confident that could do this. And I think what was frustrating from the three and a half hours that we spent last night in that back and forth... And can Did I just it need say to be three and a half hours? Like, you're talking about it being a sideshow, but you spent an awful lot of time asking her questions. We did, but I suppose there are 14 members of the committee, so they're all entitled mm -hmm. to have their, their opportunity and, and, and do but that. But it gave you do opportunity to ask more pertinent questions. Did you get clarity, transparency? Did you get what you wanted from that session? Yeah, well, I think what was evident and what came across to me, and I did say a lot of people watching in, is the archaic system in which maybe semi-states and even government departments work. That if we can have a situation where the chair of RTE sits in the room and the director general sits beside her and the minister sits there with her officials and we have the minister saying, well, it's only the chair that reports to me, not the director general. And as I said last night, that, that is not consistent. That is not good enough. It's not regardless of who reports to who. If there was misinformation being spoke or false information being spoken in the room mm -hmm. and the director general was part of this process, 
He could have intervened and said no and said to his chair, Chair, I'm sorry, but you are actually not giving and the correct information to the did. minister and, and, and say that. Yeah. But what got we worse... We did hear from Morty who, who issued yeah. a statement on this saying that Kevin Backers discussed it with the chair around that issue of exit packages after the meeting and after checking the minutes of the remuneration committee, she, Chiuni Rahali, then, then well, clarified the case, that, if that's the case, she Claire, was if, over that Okay, and I made this point last night. If that is the case, that that meeting took place after the meeting, mm. and he said, why did we get an email from uh, Kevin Backhurst that night from all the members of the media committee where he outlined a very nice picture of himself talking about how he had a positive and constructive meeting with Minister Martin, and he and the chair again highlighted Orti's commitment to transparency. We got nothing. I wish that word would stop to be used. There might be people trying to put this ship back on the road, but the last thing we've been getting is transparency. And it's an insult to the media committee, to the Oireachtas, and to the public, quite frankly, when we're talking about transparency okay. and it's not coming forth. Uh, Fintan Warfield, you were there. You were also asking the questions. Um, how do you rate Catherine Martin's performance here? Because certainly Pierce Doherty and others in your party had uh, a good go today in the Dáil. Yeah, I watched the Dáil statements today and I obviously sat through... Um, the meeting last night for three and a half hours um, and I re-watched the primetime interview on Thursday again <laughs> since since last night. Uh, and you watched still... it again? How many times have you watched it now? <laughs> Too many times? <laughs> Twice. No, but I mean, on, on this, I guess the question is now, you, you, where, where does it go? Where does it go from here? It's, it's moved on from that interview of nearly a but, week ago. But where does it go from, from that, from that uh, uh, committee uh, session that you had uh, last night. Do you think it's brought the, brought us further along the line, and where would you like to see it go now? Well, still for the life of me, I cannot understand why the media minister went out to RTE to prime time mm. to go on national to go on the national broadcaster rather than speak to the chair of the national broadcaster RTE, uh, Shuni Rahalik, whom she had appointed herself, and rather than give her the decency of a face to face meeting across the table like you and I would have. Now, um, she went on uh, public uh, uh, national rate, national broad. That's not her job. Her job is to deal with the issue at hand, is to have a straight conversation with, with Shun and to deal with the issues. I think Shun has been treated absolutely appallingly. Uh, I think she has had, had worked to steady the ship from speaking to people in the sector. That was the impression that was given. She had been on call 24 hours a day, seven days a week for the last year working for €31,000, who would do this job? What does this say about well, public service? On, what does this say about the treatment the of point. public servants? A decent person who has, has given a great public service to, to, to RTE and to TG Carr. On the point of who would take the job now, uh, a decision has to be made on who will be the new chair of the RTE board. Uh, Jack, where's that at politically now? Because you got the sense that it is, it is urgent and mm. there will be a decision early next week. Is that what we understand? Well, that's what they hope and that's what they've signalled. But every time they've signalled that they want to do it, you know, within the week, I think was the phrase that Catherine Martin used, they've kind of caveated that with the fact that it is a hope because I think that they will have an uphill struggle trying to get someone to take this on. And it's not about the money. I mean, yes, it's, in inverted commas, only 31 or 35,000 euros <laughs> a year. Like, this is one of the most kind of garlanded positions in Irish public life. It should be one of the most desired ones as well. But the fact of the matter is that you're stepping into an incredible crisis, a crisis that seems to be kind of self-propagating. It seems to just kind of shoot off in new directions all the time. And as we, as we have seen 
it not only consumes those people who were immediately adjacent to the original events of, of Ryan Toberty and the undisclosed payments, but it can suck people into this vortex and, it can, and it's now sucked the, the chair of RT into the vortex. So you're asking people not just to step up to a position of huge import in public life, but also to step up and potentially, potentially put your hand out to be slapped. So what's the speculation politically? Will a decision be made quickly and will they get a chair by early next week, Shane? Yeah, well, we had, just before I came out here tonight, we obviously had our weekly parliamentary party meeting and the Tónista uh, told us that he was confident and that we would see that uh, dealt with and a name brought to Cabinet next Tuesday. So that is the intention uh, to have that dealt with by Cabinet next week. I think on, on the broader issue, the points did that... You say, did he say there was a person in mind? No, they just said that they were confident that they would have it dealt with by Cabinet next week. On, on the issue that, that, that Finchon raised, and, and we dealt with, with Shewan uh, at our media committee meetings on, on numerous occasions, and a very honourable person, uh, and I think the Minister herself acknowledged that in her statements last night and again this evening. But, like, she was in a difficult position, quite frankly. You know, if you've got a situation where both on Monday and Wednesday of last week she was given incorrect information, and if it is a case that she felt that she didn't have confidence in the person that she said needs to report to her, well, that is, that is problematic. That is yeah. problematic for any minister. I think how it was handled was wrong. I think that, that creates an issue in but itself. Of course, there's been an awful lot of back and forth on that, Shane <coughs> Castles, and, and, and a differing viewpoint from Shun Nirahani's point got of view. It, well, are we, got, we, are we, we going to hear from the, the former, former chair well, that of Well, that, that invitation was uh, extended last night from all the members and the, and the Cahirlach Neve Smith uh, to do that, but I think that was an important interjection by the media minister last night when she said that she wanted to write to the minister to say, or to Shuna Ratley to say, we're going to meet, and she said, you know, don't send me the letter, I'll, I'll be resigning. That's not proper um, business to go on as the chair of a, of a, of a, of a semi-state company oh. either. OK, just uh, Fintan, just on the issue of, 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 I suppose, future funding, Catherine Martin said today that public trust needs to be restored before a new funding model is considered. You know, what's the barometer of, of public trust? How do you, how do you gauge it? Uh, the, Catherine Martin was one of the advocates for direct exchequer funding. She has now thrown petrol on the fire. <laughs> We have a, a government, you're talking about, we're, we're gossiping about who would be the chair of RTE. Who, the elephant in the room is, is, is uh, sustainable funding for public service broadcasts in this country. Who would take the job knowing that the government are faffing around, refusing to deal, sitting on a report since 2022, 12th of July 2022, that the Future Media Commission suggested recommendation one was direct exchequer funding, scrap the TV licence. That's what Sinn Féin wanted to see. Should these two reports, though, come out before a decision is made on funding? There's two key reports still to emerge that you'll want to ask questions about, I'm sure, Fintan, and that will go before the committee again. The Would solution. you be anxious to see those reports before decisions are made the, the on how the, minister's solution the broadcasters funded? Every solution the minister has is another report. We have, we've spent half a million euro on a report in 2022. The recommendation is direct exchequer funding. And it's not just RTE staff and ordinary workers relying on this funding. It's a whole sector, like small production companies, bigger production companies, and, and companies that contribute to the, the nominations at the Oscars that we all get. It's an ecosystem okay. that relies will, on that. I will come back to you, Shane, on that. Like, how do you gauge you know, public trust? And when is the right time to decide how you fund the broadcaster? Absolutely. And again, the Taunus actually said tonight and the Minister of Media has said tonight that we that will be, there's no one faffing about this, will be dealt with before the summer recess. I've said this on this show before and I've said it in the chamber. I fundamentally disagree with the Sinn Féin position in terms of directly exchequer mm. funding. I don't think there's uh, a situation where we give another 150 million euro of public money, taxpayers' money, and throw that on the fire to let incompetence in terms of management burn that. I think if we're going to have something, we need a reform of that system. We do need those to government reports. They are 
going to be with us inside the next month. But isn't the I real that reason that there's no funding model uh, decided is because you can't decide what no, way you're going we to can, do it? No, and I've said this to you before as well, Claire. Well, Fianna Fáil are saying something no. different to the Greens and there's some within Fine Gael are saying something no, no. different and, to And it's not just about RT. It's not just about RT. You can't decide. No, no, we can't decide. And I'll put it to you this way. If we went with the Sinn Féin model of just giving RT that directly exchequer funding, where would Virgin Media sit on that if we get let RT get directly exchequer uh, funding and add okay. money, it would be complete... All right. Uh, well, that um, one's not for me to answer. That one's not for, one for me to answer tonight. Um, but thank you uh, to Shane and to Fintan. Jack is going to stay on with me. Coming up next, uh, famine fears in Gaza as the UN warns of looming mass starvation. Do stay with us. Welcome back. The European Parliament has tonight passed an unconditional call for a ceasefire in Gaza. Meanwhile, almost a quarter of the population of Gaza... It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. That is close to famine. That's according to UN officials. Negotiations are ongoing to try to secure a week's-long pause in fighting, but the White House is saying it's optimistic of securing a deal, but very little food aid is getting through to those who desperately need it. The breakdown in civil order, driven by sheer desperation, is preventing the safe distribution of aid. We are now urgently exploring all viable uh, delivery options to allow the resumption of operations in northern Gaza as soon as possible. Well, earlier I spoke to Reham Jafari from ActionAid, who's in the West Bank, about the humanitarian situation on the ground in Gaza. Before the war, they depend in, in their food system, in their meals, before the war, on fish, in fishing and agriculture vegetables. But the sector of agriculture and fishing were completely destroyed. More than 77% of uh, fishing boats were destroyed and agriculture lands were damaged. So, and they became to depend on humanitarian aid, which is very limited, which is hindered by Israeli policies and cannot be uh, delivered to many people in Gaza. So they become to depend on uh, 
feed of animals because they do not have uh, flour. The uh, bakeries were targeted, were attacked with air strikes. Uh, the uh, water, the incineration planets also were targeted. This situation caused uh, a spread of famine, cause of diseases and spread of diseases. And we have and the people and the people so and some of them resort to use uh, and to uh, to pick the grass and mm. cook it and uh, to depend on some rice and to some uh, canned food which is unhealthy and mm. according to recent uh, reports that we receive uh, the families in Gaza uh, they uh, do not have uh, uh, one meal for more than 24 hours or for more than two days we have and, uh, yeah, can I just ask you, because you talked about children being very vulnerable and new babies and mothers being very vulnerable right now. And because ActionAid works specifically, I think, in many maternity hospitals, women are not getting enough nutrition to feed their babies. Is that correct? This is leading um, to newborns dying. It, it is, we have seen reports of that. Is that what you are hearing from your agency on the ground? Yes, more than 95% uh, of pregnant women and lacting women and the new mothers are uh, suffering from hunger and suffering from malnutrition uh, due to the lack of food, due to the lack of clear water. And there is no milk. When there is a, a, a problem in uh, natural breastfeeding for uh, mothers on uh, usual situation, they, the, uh, there will be a milk or a support milk for the new babies but this milk is not available is not delivered is uh, is not reached to those babies so many cases were reported that uh, they uh, they died due to the lack of milk and due to the lack uh, of food and new mothers are unable to generate um, uh, uh, natural milk and to uh, are unable to pr uh, to to produce natural breastfeeding because they are hungry All right. and they do not have also clear water. So the the average of uh, uh, of water quantity that each person gets now in Gaza in one uh, one liter and a half, which is below. Uh, the, uh, the the international standard that uh, we know that each person or each human being needs more than 15 liters of water. So the, each person in Gaza now just gets one liter and a half, which is not enough for survival. All right, Reham Jafari, thank you for bringing us up to date on the situation there and what your agency on the ground is seeing happening right now in Gaza. We do appreciate it. Thank you. Jack Horgan-Jones is still with me. I'm also joined now by Deirdre Garvey from the Irish Red Cross. Thank you for being with us tonight, Deirdre. Um, we heard what Reham had to say about the situation there, that people are actually using animal fodder, grounding it up to use as flour to make bread. Uh, a, a critical and catastrophic situation for people on the ground right now. In terms of the, the aid you're supplying and the work that you're doing there, how precarious is it right now? Well, I think it's really important uh, to listen to what Rahim has been telling us, you know, from, from where she is in, in the West Bank. Um, our president of the Global Red Cross uh, Federation was visiting Gaza about 10 days ago. And in 40 years of humanitarian work, she has never seen anything worse than this situation. And I think it's really important that we understand the scale of the tragedy that is unfolding. 
The word famine has a very emotive uh, meaning for us here in Ireland. We, we know in our bones and in our memories and our cultural memory what that is. We see, uh, I guess, on a five-point scale of where famine is five on the scale, we see the population of Gaza being classed as 0.4 um, with the projection that they will be in full-scale famine by May. We have 15 bakeries that are open out of the 97 bakeries that were available in Gaza before the 7th of October. We have the fishing infrastructure and the farming infrastructure devastated. We have uh, people starving. We heard some of those facts there from, from the VT in, in, in your colleague. And what we are seeing is that there is an absolute destruction of uh, the ability to stay alive. We have, uh, I guess, a systematic inability to deliver the aid. The aid is not getting through uh, into northern Gaza. We are not getting the aid into Gaza through that one border opening. It is really a catastrophic situation. Because we've consistently heard from Israel that they are not blocking aid, and yet, even since that ICJ court ruling in which they stipulated that, you know, in order to prevent genocide or to ensure that it is not occurring, you need to ensure that food, that aid supplies are getting to Palestinians. You've seen a drop-off in aid since then. Is that what the Red Cross well, is reporting? Well, the, the Red Crescent there, the Palestinian Red Crescent and the Egyptian Red Crescent are on the ground. Uh, we had our president stand there for a number of hours 10 days ago. One truck got through in one hour. So when you say that aid is not being stopped, what is happening is that it is a, it is a tiny junction, it is a tiny gate. The delays in getting a truck through uh, are, are very, very slow. If there is any single item on that truck that is deemed in the interpretation of the Israeli military that this could be used for military purposes to, to their enemy, mm -hmm. then the entire truck has to actually be removed and doesn't get through. 130 trucks on average a day are getting through to the population that requires 500 trucks uh, of supplies and food and energy because that was what was getting through prior to the October 7th. So when you look at the difference, there is a massive difference in what's getting through and then what is possible to distribute. Our humanitarian colleagues in the Palestinian Red Crescent their supplies, their trucks going from the south of Gaza to the north are being fired on, are being prevented. And I think it's really important that who's we understand... Who's firing on them? This is not for me to say who's firing on them. Mm. They are not able to get aid through to the north of Gaza. The Palestinian Red Crescent had to suspend its, its, um, its, its medical uh, services for 48 hours because the staff and volunteers were losing their lives. We have lost 17 lives between the Palestinian Red Crescent and indeed mm. Magan David Alram in, in Israel due to this conflict. It is a it is a total destruction of the ability to to provide food and to provide supplies. And everything Deirdre is saying and everything we heard from Rahim all points to this push now for more than a humanitarian pause, but for a ceasefire to happen so that aid uh, can get in. There has been some developments on the European front um, on that tonight, Jack. Yeah, so I think this is quite significant, particularly when you look at where kind of the centre of European politics started out, this conflict, the European Commission projecting the Israeli flag after the October 7th attacks onto the Berlimont building. And we've seen, I think, progressively 
that centre of European politics move towards what actually is closer to the, the Irish government's position mm -hmm. and the long-standing position um, of the Department of Foreign Affairs here, which is for a, a permanent and lasting ceasefire. And we see tonight the European Parliament passing an unconditional call for a ceasefire in Gaza. And it was a narrow, a narrow victory. Uh, it, was, it was put in as a, an addendum to another, another vote that was going through. But I think interestingly as well, looking at who put it forward, it seems to be in a Belgian MEP among the sponsors, some Spanish MEPs. So they would come from that same kind of caucus of countries that kind of think similarly to Ireland. We remember that uh, Ireland and Spain um, last month were amongst mm -hmm. countries who wrote to the European Commission asking them to take action and move their position. So I think that there is, there is, there is movement going There's on momentum. here, but, but how at, the same, is it? at the same time, it doesn't seem to have a huge impact on the ground where all we hear on the ground are these devastating stories of human loss, suffering and catastrophic words like famine all of a sudden mm -hmm. coming back into the, the lexicon to, to describe something that is happening in the world here today um, and, and you know the, the, the political charge then that the government and Western politics in general faces is that it fiddles while Gaza burns quite mm -hmm. literally. Um, also what we heard today which we've known for months on end as all of this has been unfolding is that international journalists cannot get into Gaza They've written a letter uh, to Israeli and to Egyptian authorities, actually, to let them through at key border crossings and let them report on the ground. Um, is there a big, huge concern there at this point that while we are getting some images from the region, we are not seeing everything that is unfolding? Yeah, um, and, you know, the, the fear is, of course, if you don't see it, you're not there to monitor it, you're not there to project those images and tell those stories around the world and that you get things through a certain frame. I know, for example, when uh, correspondents are embedded with the Israeli military, there's a censor who reads every, every word of copy that goes through. Um, so you do get that particular kind of, of, of framing as well. And obviously we know that journalists have been amongst the groups who have racked up tremendous losses uh, amongst the number. People reporting on the ground in Gaza have paid with their lives for their work. So, you know, you commend those of our colleagues who are willing to, to, to go forward and, and not just signal their willingness, but to agitate, to be allowed in, because it is an important role, as we all know, to get accurate and, and reliable information out, because truth is the first casualty in war and you need, you need people there reporting on it to establish what exactly is going on. Deirdre, just to go back to getting aid to those people who desperately need it, and we're hearing about the situation, especially in the north of Gaza mm. right now, that aid trucks have not gotten through mm -hmm. in a matter of weeks now Correct. at this point. So if, if the trucks, because we, we, we've heard for months on end now that it's a drop in the ocean mm. uh, of what's required, are there other methods of getting food to people? Well, or I think trucks at crossings? Well, I think there is some aid being dropped uh, from air support, I understand, from, from certain agencies, and I believe that that is, is happening in the, the south of Gaza. But the quantum of scale of, of, of food and of nutrients and of water that is needed um, is such that trucks are the main mechanism for the distribution of such aid. And I think it's really important when we speak about the ability of journalists and the ability of images to come out. We, we are seeing very tough images. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really important when we talk about images. The symbol and the emblem of the Red Crescent, and indeed the Red Cross here in Ireland, but the Red Crescent, by international law, it means 
do not shoot. I mean, the basic rules of war in the Geneva Conventions can, conventions can be boiled down to that simple. And yet do we've not seen shoot. That what's what's um, happened to ambulance workers. And we are seeing that. And I think it's the aid workers, it's the humanitarian aid. Uh, and you can call it in one sense what we like to call it in terms of uh, ceasefire or pause or humanitarian aid. But we need a sustained period of time where we can get the aid into Gaza, and then we can get the aid distributed around Gaza. And I think we must adhere to a rules-based system Are, where the red crescent symbol means do not shoot. I mean, is the red crescent a, a, at a point where it, it, it is struggling to do its work? Well, it, we, there are staff and volunteers in the Palestinian Red Crescent and indeed in the Egyptian Red Crescent, and they do not stop. They do not stop volunteering to do what they can. But the hospitals have run out of fuel. Mm. Uh, they are uh, losing their lives. They have not the ability to travel. They are being stopped and not just with, 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 with shelling and military danger to their lives. Uh, but I think it is very clear that the humanitarian agencies that are there are not stopping. And I, I, I have to commend the Irish people and the generosity of the Irish people and indeed uh, the stance that Ireland has taken, focusing on the humanitarian need mm -hmm. and the Gaza fundraising appeal that we and others are doing, I think is a great testament to the sympathy of the Irish people. All right, OK, there we will leave that. Uh, my thanks to you, Deirdre, for joining us. Jack is going to stay on with me because coming up next in uh, the peril in the primaries for Joe Biden, as the Gaza war spooks some Democrat voters, do stay with us. Welcome back. Donald Trump and Joe Biden have won their respective presidential primaries in Michigan, making an election rematch between the pair even more likely. There was some cause for concern for Mr Biden as he faced an organised resistance from some voters unhappy with his handling of the conflict in the Middle East. I'm joined from Washington in the United States by news correspondent Nick Harper. Uh, Nick, thanks for being with us tonight. Um, Joe Biden winning... Uh, the Michigan Democratic presidential primary. But can you give us a little background on the significance of Michigan as a key swing state in the US elections? Yeah, good. Good evening, Claire. This is uh, the presidential primary. So this is an opportunity for voters in the state to be able to say uh, which candidate they want heading up the respective Democratic and Republican parties. But it also shows uh, how things could go come November in the presidential election. And to put it bluntly, it may come down to Michigan. The White House may be won or lost on it. It's part of the traditional blue wall that Donald Trump flipped in 2016. That helped him win the White House. And then Joe Biden won it back in 2020, flipping it back to the Democrats. And that helped him to win the White House. It is one of the key swing states. And to see President Biden face some resistance in the state could suggest that he could be in trouble come November. Yeah, Joe Biden winning comfortably there. But were Democrats surprised by the size of the protest vote over U.S. support for Israel in the war on Gaza? Uh, there were over 100,000 voters at that presidential primary who said they were uncommitted. That's what they ticked in the box. They didn't tick yes to Biden. They ticked the uncommitted box. 
Yeah, that's a big number, 100,000. I mean, only 13%, it doesn't sound like very much, but 100,000 is a lot of voters when you consider that in 2020, there was just 150,000 votes separating Joe Biden's win from Donald Trump's loss in the state. But I think it's also worth bearing in mind the turnout figures, because there were several hundred thousand Democrats who simply didn't turn out. So they didn't just protest by ticking uncommitted, they protested, protested by not turning out. We saw a much better turnout from the Republican side than the Democrat side. There's not just anger or frustration. I mean, there's real pent-up fury in the state from Arab-American, uh, Palestinian uh, origin voters in the state who are so furious with Joe Biden, simply saying that his response to Gaza, and they see his lack of protections for civilians in the Gaza Strip as being the reason that they can no longer support him, not just in this primary, but potentially in November as well. Um, a great day for Donald Trump, as he put it himself, in Michigan. Um, he easily won through in the Republican primary there, but Nikki Haley's still hanging on. She is, yeah. She's not showing any signs yet, at least, of going away. She has for several weeks said that she wants to remain in the race until Super Tuesday. That's this Tuesday coming up, March the 5th. It's when 15 states out of the 50 across the US uh, get to have their say. She says that she is the alternative to Donald Trump. She also says that with millions of Americans about to cast their vote on Tuesday, it's her duty to remain in the race. Because if she's not there, there's really no one else to vote for apart from Donald Trump. She predicts more chaos if Trump is elected, and she's really trying to be that anti-Trump vote. But as we saw in Michigan, people want Donald Trump, more than 40% difference separating the two of them there. Is there any idea that with Biden, as say, well, he, he, was, he suffered uh, to a small extent by this um, protest vote, but that the Democrats at this point might look to somebody else to, to, to match against Donald Trump come November? Well, well, you're right. I mean, there is this real fear about whether or not Joe Biden is strong enough to face up to uh, the former president, Donald Trump. Poll after poll shows voters, obviously Republicans, but also Democrats, saying that they are very worried about his mental health, his mental agility, whether he has the ability to run another four years, uh, not just the country, but many global affairs as well. There is that concern, but there's no one waiting in the rings. There isn't really another replacement candidate who could come forward. Now, look, the vice president, Kamala Harris, is there. If anything were to happen to the president, if he were to drop dead, she would step in. But there is no suggestion at this place that they're looking to kick out Biden and put her in his place instead. Uh, this is a very strange election year. Potentially anything could happen. But at this stage, there doesn't seem to be a full frontal campaign to replace Biden, because that in itself would suggest a huge lack of confidence throughout the Republican Party and potentially undecided voters out there deciding who they're going to pick might not pick the Democratic Party if they see that level of chaos from within and indecision over who should be leading the party. All right, Nick Harper, thank you for joining us tonight from Washington. Irish Times political correspondent Jack Corgan-Jones is still here with me. We also heard today from the states that Mitch McConnell, the US Senate's longest serving Republican leader, has decided to bow out. He's uh, at an age of 82. He mm. served uh, a long time in the Senate. It will pose questions again as to the age of people who are running uh, for the White House. 
Yeah, and the capacity of American politics to kind of renew itself and bring new generations through. And it was interesting to note as well that amongst the people who were out early and often to uh, pay tribute to Mitch McConnell, but also to welcome his statement that he was stepping aside for a new generation to come through, was Nikki Haley, who obviously represents that constituency within the Republican Party, which is not Trump, you know, and which does hope for some kind of generational passing over the baton on from the generation of Biden and Trump. I mean, it's interesting. The reason I think that she's staying in is because she appeals to that constituency and it, it speaks to a weakness both within the Trump camp, but as you, as you guys are saying, within the Democratic camp that we see with the uncommitted vote, that there are constituencies within both of those large parties that don't feel catered for by their respective presidential nominations. And the, the rogue factor is, where will they go come election day? Will this be like um, previous iterations of this kind of dynamic that we've seen before, where people were afraid that, you know, Bernie Sanders voters wouldn't turn out to vote for for uh, Barack Obama. Similarly, there was a concern that Hillary Clinton voters wouldn't turn out to vote for Barack Obama. On both occasions, they proved to be ill-founded, but American politics is just so fractured at the moment mm -hmm. and so divided and so polarised that it's a real, as I say, a real rogue wave heading into and November. What could be a key theme of this election as well as the protest vote, as we saw from what happened in Michigan. Yeah, exactly. And when it comes to states like Michigan, and there are several now states that used to be blue states and they're now purple states, they're swing states, you know, the vast majority of the American electorate would never countenance voting for the other guy. But there are small cohorts of voters within those swing states, swing voters, whose votes are in play. And really, at the end of the day, they are who come, they're, they're the people who actually end up where, who, who sits in the White House for the next four years. And, you know, the, that, that's part of the, the weakness of Trump is that he's, he's seen to alienate those swing voters, you know, those kind of middle ground voters, whereas Biden is seen as traditionally more kind of, uh, more appealing to them because he's more of a kind of middle of the road, normal, generic politician type. Mm -hmm. But whether that appeal, which was so strong in 2020 or so successful for him in 2020, whether it survives all the way through to 2024 remains to be seen. Whether it can be repeated. Uh, thank you, Jack, for that. Thanks to all our panel tonight. That is it from us. The group chat is coming here in Virgin Media 1 at 11.20. But from all the late team here, good night. Do take care. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.